One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us this week. With me in the studio today, it's the very excellent Alison Rudd, who is presently applying chapstick. Down the line, we have from uh, an undisclosed location somewhere in far west London, probably not very far from Matthew Syed's house, it's Matt Dickinson, who I believe is also applying chapstick. Uh, I'm very close to Matthew Sides mansion rather than house. I think you've got to get the right terminology there. I think I think gaff is the term we like to, to use. It's the book a lot of people are talking about. Brave New World inside Mauricio Pochettino's uh, Tottenham Hotspur. I am delighted that joining us for that is going to be uh, an alumnus of the game podcast and a good friend of mine, Guillaume Balaguet, who of course went and, uh, and actually physically wrote the book. Not that Pochettino wouldn't have been able to it's just that he's very busy unlike Guillaume who's just a layabout and does very little but first of course we need to start at Stamford Bridge I'm delighted that we're joined for this part of the discussion by Henry Winter uh, as well Henry the backdrop to this uh, a bad defeat in Rome the usual murmurs uh, about people being unhappy, sniping from from Mourinho, Conte happily sniping back, and then he decides, I think, that if he's going to go down, he's going to go down on his terms, and he makes a big statement by dropping David Luiz, not even on the bench, going out afterwards and saying, "Well, I don't know if he has a future here." Um, did that surprise you? Uh, not if, I've, if you've seen Christensen play this season and you know that uh, David Luiz can, despite his sort of goal threat, despite the sort of flamboyance and the sort of Brazilian element to him, you know, he, he takes risks. And I wouldn't necessarily have thought he was a, a Conti type of uh, defender in the first place, particularly when you look at uh, over the summer, the type of defenders that Conti was linked with. And particularly if you've talked to Michael Imanalo about Christensen's development. I mean, they've got this... You know, you know Cobham well, and they've got this road that goes down the middle, and they've got this sort of the academy on one side, and they're developing all these sort of young prospects. Then they go out on loan, as um, as uh, Christensen did, became Player of the Year over at uh, Bruce Mitch and Gladbach, and he was, he was fantastic over there and developed. And all the while, Emanalo and the other coaches down at Cobham, outside of the first team, were keeping tabs on his process. They were skyping him. They got a room downstairs 
in which they go through all his games. They talk to him about his strengths, his weaknesses, how he's developing on and off the pitch. He sounds like a sensible individual, anyone, 21-year-old Danes <laughs> often are very well-educated, intelligent. So it wasn't a complete surprise. I think it's, I think it's terrific. Okay, I was slightly surprised on that, that Gary Cahill hasn't come on the more but, 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 but Sorry, Henry, but it's one thing to start Christensen ahead of David Luiz. But he didn't just drop Luis from starting 11. He dropped him from the squad entirely. And he kind of made it very clear that this was some kind of discipline stroke punishment. And I think that's a big statement, no? Okay. I mean, let's look at this. I mean, in in classic English media terms, this is a fire and ice situation. The ice is that was it the right tactical decision to make? Christensen deserved his start. David Luiz had made one or two mistakes. The fire element, of course, is what the media brings and also what Conte's personality brings to uh, any scenario, inflaming it slightly, is that uh, some of his comments and David Luiz's profile as well, that any comments, and he did slightly backtrack in his press conference compared to what he said on television. Well, I thought they were slightly provocative, slightly unnecessary, um, but... Actually, if he wants to send out a message, a big statement, as some people put it in caps up letters, then, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's doing it from a position of strength with Christensen doing well. And it wasn't simply about Christensen. Obviously, Kante returning. There's been so much hysteria about Chelsea ignoring the fact they were missing the football of the year, just like Manchester United are desperately missing Pogba. We saw that yesterday. Kante coming in. But the other thing that Conte did yesterday, which a lot of people quite rightly pointed out, the three-man the field was, was, was terrific. Bakayoko was able to, to push on. Fabregas was, was man of the match and there were other contenders there. Hazard playing just slightly off uh, Morata. So it worked. So he got his tactics right and we praised him for that after, you know, when he was 3-0 down and 3-0 seems to bit of a theme um, against Arsenal last season. I think he deserves the praise now. I like Conte. I don't like good coaches being hounded out of this country. I think we should appreciate him taking into account some of his over-emotional statements and uh, comments and reactions. And okay, you know, you kind of have to live with that a bit because the broader picture is that he's an exceptional coach. Dicko, uh, it seemed to me that United really struggled despite trying to trying to perhaps attack and, and engage Chelsea more. Um, Chelsea were pretty dominant, weren't they? Yeah, no, absolutely. I thought, um, Kant, as Henry says, Kante returning gave sort of reassurance and allowed Fabregas to absolutely blossom some some fantastic passing. And Bakayoko finishing needs uh, sharpening up, but his his running was was key from midfield, um, not least for the goal stretching United's defence. And I asked Mourinho yesterday about you know this sort of pretty glaring stat, Lukaku doesn't even touch the ball in, in Chelsea's penalty area, which he sort of dismissed, um, said, oh, you know, I was happy with his work and did plenty of work. But, I mean, that's, say, uh, yeah, it's a one-off, uh, it's not just a one-off stat. The fact is United on the road are stumbling. Yesterday, basically, the only time they really threatened with any, you know, sustained pressure was sticking Fellaini on and shoving balls into the box. And, that is not clearly a sort of long-term answer to attacking fluency. Um, Pogba is hugely, hugely missed. Um, Mourinho talks about him returning sooner rather than later. Um, they certainly need him back for December the 9th, which, which could be the earliest title decider in history at this rate. I would like to... I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this, but I would quite like to defend Mourinho a little in that um, he he did allow it to be an entertaining game and you know, it could have been a park bus lack of any effort at all. And when Fellaini did come on, if he's telling the truth about Fellaini not being fit to start, Chelsea did panic and they did retreat. They defended very deep and they allowed United about 
10 minutes of looking like they could very well get an equaliser. It wasn't um, it wasn't a disastrous performance from United, given the people they were missing and that Mkhitaryan was rubbish. Henry, I... <laughs> I take the point. I mean, I think I'm with Allison a little bit. Mourinho tried, but he's obviously missing key players. I know Mkhitaryan got absolutely <laughs> slaughtered by everybody. Uh, to be fair to him, earlier this season when he was playing with guys who could play, like Mata and Pogba, um, he was more productive. Now that maybe he has to carry more of the burden on his own, he's he's less productive. I mean, it was strange last season. Manchester United fans were sort of calling for him to uh, to start and be used more regularly. Mourinho ignored that, and now he's he's almost overplaying him, partly because Pogba's not there. But that was, I mean, I, I mean, Matt's piece this morning was completely right. I mean, if you look at uh, how Lukaku and Rashford were trying to play, there was just a void between them and and midfield. But Mkhitaryan was supposed to sort of seize that opportunity, so Hazard's foul. And he simply didn't do it. So I don't think you can blame Mourinho's starting tactics. What I did find extraordinary was five minutes before half-time, they started kicking Hazard. Um, started before half-time, Valencia took him out, and then, obviously, first ten minutes of the second half, Jones then Herrera had, had a nibble. And it was almost like they thought, oh, we remember what uh, our tactics were here sort of last season. It's coming up to half-time. Maybe Mourinho's going to do this. But I actually thought Mourinho, as soon as Allison said, defending him, I thought he's, he's starting tactics. I don't think you could dispute too much, given that the you know, the options he had available. Let's go back to the two managers, and I know it's a little bit lurid and a little bit sensationalist, but when a guy doesn't go and shake the other guy's hand at the final whistle, given that it is part of a ritual, I'm not going to say he's not entitled to do it, but when he does it, he's clearly sending a message because you do it every other time. Dicko that he can't stand it, which, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I have to say I'm, I'm a bit, I'm, I'm probably... Not going to go down the. Uh, it's it's a nice ritual road. I mean, most managers do it because they think it's a politest thing to do. But Conte thinks, well, you know, I don't really want to do it because I don't seem to like the bloke very much, and with some valid reasons, I suspect. He decides at the final whistle. You know, he, look, he's got his own histrionics, but he decides to walk on the pitch, pump his fists, and celebrate a uh, a huge result, and not go and shake the hand of a bloke he doesn't like. And I, I don't think that's. Yeah, I, I think. It's funny, sort of being in the press room yesterday and the manager being asked about it, you know, Brexit, warm beer and our obsession with managers shaking hands are probably three things that confuse foreigners the most. Yeah, Conte probably thought it would be a bit hypocritical because... He did, that's exactly he, I mean, he, 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 he After the uh, 3-3 at Stamford Bridge with Roma, he was asked about Mourinho saying, oh, I don't bleat on about my injuries. Some managers just cry a lot when they've got injuries. And he didn't, he didn't dismiss that. He, he, he was simmering when that was put to him, that Mourinho was having a go at his moaning. And he said, he should look at himself. He shouldn't look at me. He, he was really cross. He, you know, Matt's right. They, he doesn't like him. So if, he, if he'd rather celebrate with the fans and make time to seek out a man he, he has no respect for, then... It's fine, I suppose. I, I, I take, take a slightly different tack. I think it would have been it made the victory even greater if he'd gone over and in a sort of very patronising way shaken Mourinho's <laughs> hand, taken the moral high ground, and then he could have said, listen, even though you lot say I don't like him, I go and I, it's important to shake the hands, particularly if someone who is suffering, who's lost, who's been humiliated on his return to his former club, he wouldn't necessarily have had to come out sort of all sort of Verdi style. But it would have been quite sort of fun. 
I like that. I think because, unfortunately, it's slightly detracted from... Everyone was talking about the handshake rather than the fact that he'd made three very intelligent substitutions which had countered what Mourinho was doing. Rudiger coming on, um, Drinkwater coming on, then William coming on. All those three substitutions. I was going, wow, this guy is, is really a class act, as if we needed reminding. I just like that idea of, of patronising uh, as someone you don't like by being over sort of charming. Maybe you should go up and dab him or, you know, sort of do a fake or, you know, do a, do a dummy run or something. But, no, I mean, he was actually, Gary Neville, I did an interview with him a week or so ago, and he said, we were just talking about the sort of way the season's shaping up, and he said that he felt there was a sort of volcano ready to explode in terms of the big man. you got all these big egos in the league, group of big beasts we haven't had for a while in terms of Conte, Klopp, Guardiola, Mourinho, obviously Pochettino's on the rise, etc. And he just said... Yeah, he just felt it was simmering and ready to explode because ultimately, you know, only one or two of them are going to win any trophies this year. And the way it's going, it's already looking like Guardiola's got his hands on at least at least one of them. So he thought it was it was ready to kick off, and um, he couldn't wait for it. To be honest, he said, "Fantastic!" You know, the, the, the Premier League at its best has Fergie v Benitez or Fergie v Wenger or you know Fergie v Keegan, and great. You know, let's let's see these. You know, intense, incredibly intense rivalries between brilliant managers come bubbling up. Matt, I'll tell you what, and Alison, we must get to the uh, LMA end of season dinner early. Get our places at the bar because it really will kick off there. And it normally gets a little bit sort of tense or sort of jovial from about 10.30 onwards. So I think it could be fight night there. Now this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup as well. Now just £8 for an eight-week trial. And in addition to all those goals, you also get, and I like to underscore this because I like to think of myself as a newspaper guy, a tremendous amount of quality written content from uh, from all of us. I, I think it's a really good deal. I would say that, of course. But now, with that in mind, let's discuss our goal of the weekend. Dico, what was your choice? My choice um, was Van La Parra. I, I'm not normally a sort of guy who goes for the... You know, the big long ranger. I like a bit of deafness in my in my favourite goals. But this one, well, A, there weren't a lot of um, death goals this weekend. Uh, a lot of corner set pieces. And B, Van La Parra, I mean, it's a heck of a shot, isn't it? It's a big win for uh, Huddersfield. And when you stick one in from 30 yards with a little bit of dip, a bit of curl, then who isn't uh, who isn't happy? Um, on that goal, incidentally, I, I saw Tony Pulis complaining about that it should have been a free kick the other way in the lead-up to the goal. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, controversial. But it was a whole sequence before the goal. Good 20 minutes earlier, yeah. <laughs> I was absolutely... I, yeah, I'm all for, like, going and managers who complain and stuff, and you're entitled to do it. But but then it had no impact on the goal either because it's a guy just swinging his leg from, you know, it's not like it, it's not like the free kick led to some clear-cut chance. It's just a lot of sideways passing. And Tony then guy... Pulis is big on parallel universes and he knows if that free kick had gone West Brom's way, it would have been a very different outcome. It's been different outcomes. Your goal, I, I would imagine uh, uh, it's, uh, it's tinged in red. Yeah, it's self-indulgent choice. It's Salah's first against West Ham because... One, I was made to suffer, sat at Wembley as Liverpool were humiliated by Spurs not so very long ago. So it was nice to see the flip side of that. And there's something about Mane being back, fit and alongside Salah. And you kind of feel all things are possible when Liverpool have those two players available. 
uh, it was a funny goal. The defending was really quite crass and silly. And uh, Salah to had him. to Salah had to sort of slow down to make sure because he's almost sort of too fast for his own good sometimes. And also, I think it marked the moment in my football watching life where I believe Salah will score. Whereas I think up until now, even though his scoring record is phenomenal, I always think. Oh, he's, he's not necessarily that reliable. He does all the difficult things and then misses. I sort of now think he's um, he's a proper reliable striker. All right, let's move on to the Etihad. And all right, we're going to talk Man City and their brilliance in a second. But I want to start with our qualified ref, Alison Rudd. Arsene Wenger was unhappy. He thought... David Silva was offside. He thought that Raheem Sterling took a dive. I think he said something like, well, of course, City are unbeatable if they keep getting these decisions. Um, does he have a case? Is it clever to, 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 to come out with something like this? No, of course not. You're not supposed to come out with stuff like that. You have to believe the officials do the best job they can, that they're not all City fans. I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a ridiculous thing for him to say. It was one of those decisions which is bound to rile the manager against whom it goes because it was it was one of those 51% 49% penalties i think some referees might have decided there was too little there some some referees might have thought um sterling you know ran across was was hoping his leg would get tangled up some okay, some referees would have said it was shoulder to shoulder and you will get tangling of legs right. as a consequence I thought it was at least 80 20. I mean, you know, there's, there is the shoulder and the tangle of legs, which is, you know, caused by Monreal, who's basically been, been, he has been done. I mean, you just look at, you know, it's one of those things you just look at and just say, well, the defender's, defender knows he's in trouble and he's trying to, he's trying to get across the player. And I mean, Wenger's, Wenger just get, when, it, when Wenger's at his most peevish, I mean, obviously he was furious about the offside, which was a really poor call, but. When Wenger gets peevish, he gets really peevish. And I see there were you know, other comments about officials are getting worse each season based based on absolutely nothing apart from just being in a bad mood and saying referees do not work hard enough. I want to ask about Arsenal because just actually the, the way they played. Um, he's obviously wedded to this three-at-the-back system because he yields some good results. I, Alison, to me, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever because... You play three at the back if your players know how to do it well. And they, they did get some decent results with it. But you need to have the personnel to do it. If you're shoehorning Francis Coughlin as a center back, it's not going to work. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, oh. well, the, And they look better in the second half when they change the system back the to... Back, yeah. yeah, no, you're right. I, I, I think probably I am a conservative when it comes to analyzing football. And I would suggest that if you do operate three at the back, particularly somewhere against a top six team, you you need to know that the personnel in those positions are expert at it, that they've practised it, that they're very well drilled in it, and it was thrown together as an emergency formation. So why you think you can go to the Etihad with a group of players that haven't played three at the back together before? I don't think those three have played together in that system before. Not Coughlin and exactly. Back. So what well, I don't. It just seems to me you're better off reverting to a system where more players have played it more of the time and they're more used to it. I would, yeah, I agree with you completely. It, it, it seems slightly uh, self-indulgent even. But worse was not playing with an out-and-out centre-forward. I mean, the only weaknesses in City are they don't have as many tall players as you. 
So, you know, just try and threaten them in some way, make them have yeah. to think about something. But I, uh, that, that to me was more annoying than playing uh, looked, a cobble together three at the back was, was, was starting with Sanchez and not Lacazette. It looked as if they wanted to play the little people and try to somehow press them. Um, We're but not going to do that. You know, look at the table, look at the table. You're not going to do that. They're the better team at the moment. Well, why, why, do you think, be, why do you think you can match them man for man? To be fair, though, I mean, Napoli and Shakhtar Donetsk both pressed... City High and created a lot of problems for them. But not so, enough. They and did. Napoli are in better form than Arsenal, aren't they? Yeah, Outside of no, the Champions they League? Probably are, but yeah, it's, it's still it's still odd when you leave Lacazette on the bench, right? They, I mean, they're just, they're just weird. Yeah, no, I can't. And it's, it's I can't. just as odd that you keep Giroud, who's like the backup to the backup of the backup, right? It's not the only time he's left Lacazette on the bench, isn't it? And it's, uh, yeah, it's odd. Odd. I mean, there's no explanation apart from I can't even think of one actually he's you know and, and uh, Alison's right I mean it was just it didn't make sense the, the sort of throw together a defence I know you've got issues but um, yeah it, that that didn't work and I think we saw highlighted was it match of the day last night highlighted the, how inefficient the pressing was you know one guy goes and the rest are going what, what are you doing that for and then he turns around and Sanchez seemed to be throwing his arms in the air as much as he was doing anything and you know, it's back to the same old issues with Arsenal about just what drilling is there going on on the training ground to make them efficient. You know, we know they've got quality players, but they're not a team that week to week, you know, are being drilled to have a plan for a specific game. I thought our colleague, um, I'm trying to think of new and original things to talk to say about City, and I thought our colleague Ollie Kay wrote a fine column on Saturday where where he made the point that, yes, Guardiola spent an absolute ton of money and they have an enormous wage bill, but incidentally, it's not that enormous relative to to Chelsea and Manchester United and other big clubs. But the fact that he objectively made players better with guys like, like Raheem Sterling, like John Stones, like uh, Otamendi, Kyle Walker from what we've seen this year. I wonder, how much stock do you put on that? I mean, are these guys who would have been who would have been just as good if they remained with a different manager, if he'd never shown up, or has he actually worked with them and made them better players, or does does the system just make them seem like better players? I think if the players think Guardiola is a god, they will improve. You have to buy into the myth. Myth, maybe myth's the wrong word. That implies that I don't think he's a very good manager. He's obviously okay, but if the players believe in him, okay, you've got several things going on. One is. Uh, Pep Guardiola's CV and the fact that he is such a strong philosophy, such a strong personality and knows what he wants to do. If the players buy into that, they will necessarily improve because they will do what he says to do to get better. There'll be no, oh, I can't do that. I wasn't taught that when I was six. So I think that, that happens. If you're surrounded by excellent players, there's no weak links in that team apart from no. maybe Otamendi. Well, Delft's played really well, hasn't he? He's just been very <laughs> solid. He's not been, he's not but been, isn't he's not that been bad. The, isn't that kind of like the epitome? Here's a guy who's he's a central midfielder who's been injured for, for yonks and yet and you've got to give him credit for taking the, his chance. He's no, taken no, his chance. He's not just taking he? his chance. He's playing a different position. That's obviously a credit to Delph who follows Guardiola's in, uh, instructions but it's also the credit to Guardiola who, says, who looks at the guy and says, I can teach you to play left back at a very high level you who've never done it who doesn't have the acceleration of a left back who doesn't really have the skill set of absolutely a left back. that which brings me back to the point that Delph can only do that if he believes in Guardiola so if you if you so, yeah, if you so believe they, in the cult of Guardiola and he tells you you can play left back you will believe it but also 
I think it's about specifics, isn't it? I think basically players can do that, and basically that, back to that comparison, really, with Arsenal, if the manager is very specific about you know what he what he wants from you, what he needs from you, and we saw it with Conte's Chelsea last year. You can see the value of good coaching when you saw that Victor Moses became a, a, a title-winning wing-back because he was a coach who absolutely drilled him, told him very specifically where you move, how you move, when you know how are we going to play out the bat, where you know if the ball's been built up on the left, this is where you go on the right. Uh, to, to, to absolute detail, and that's that's Guardiola style. I mean, I'm told certain players find him irritating as hell because he is on their case all the time. You know, he's incredibly demanding. He's not an easy guy or, uh, a lot of the time to work around, but it's very clear what he wants from you. If I'm playing Fabian Delph here, this is what I need you to do. This is where you move. If I'm playing you another place, this is what you do. And, you know, it's uh, I'm simplifying a very... Uh, obviously a more complicated job, but you, you you can see the teams that have coaches who are painstaking. Theoretically, it's what every manager should be doing. It's just that some guys are better at it than others, evidently. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We just got news. Slavin Bilic is no longer the West Ham United manager. Uh, there are obviously strong rumors about David Moyes that may or may not happen. We'll deal with it later. I want to look back, though, on Bilic. I think a one went wrong. Um, West Ham, there's normally quite a few things that go wrong. Um, I think that on a short-term, to be honest, defensive organization, again, we're back to that issue of you know managers do a lot of things. Um, they look for players. They make a hundred decisions every day about, you know, organisation of of the club. But their critical job is being on top of uh, the eleven players who go out and making sure everyone knows exactly what their role is. And I bumped into someone at West Ham recently who just said that they thought Slaven was a, a really good motivator of people and a and a pretty decent coach, but that they sort of got sloppy. Um, certainly in defensive organisation, and I think there were signs of that. I think his own motivation had ebbed because he knew he was in the last year of a contract, he knew he was dead man walking. I think that comes then back to the issue of a club that is pretty dysfunctional at the top. You've got David Sullivan, who is a sort of de facto director of football, well, and his son, um, who like to be very involved in transfer policy. You've got Karen Brady, who brings her own unique style of management to the party. Then you've got David Gold, and the three of them are often pulling different ways on the same issues. 
So it's, it really is not an easy club to be manager of, and I think Billage have got worn down by that. But Alison, Slavin Billage, I've just been reliably informed by our producer Charlie, who would not be making this up, <laughs> he is the highest points per game ratio of any West Ham manager in the Premier League era, and he's gone. Might that not suggest that if they see problems there, maybe the problem isn't Billage, maybe the problem is elsewhere? Yeah, no, well, we forget oh, how memories fade, don't they? I mean, West Ham were on course to get a Champions League place not so very long ago under Billich. He's popular with the fans. He fell this season because he'd built, maybe you'd say stupidly, a manager should not do this, but he'd, he'd envisaged the team uh, working around William Carvalho from Sporting Lisbon, and that deal failed. Uh, Mark Noble is getting on a bit. It's it's looking a bit fragile in the middle. He needs a he needs that. It, I mean, you look at West Ham, and that is exactly what they need. They can they can they can sort of splinter and go all over the place. There's no one holding it together. And I, more importantly, I think the fact that that deal fell through. Golden Sullivan were called the Dildo Brothers, and Billich made a joke about that. I mean, I think that I think I think there's thought we're not we're not a family anymore. We just there's no respect here, and they were looking for a reason to get rid of him after that. Because have you seen David the, Sullivan? Billet. What do you mean? Have I seen David Sullivan? Just everything about him. I mean, the stupid hat he wears, his little mini helicopter. I mean, what? Well, I'm not going to judge a person on the on what they look like. That that would be what about his life's work? How, would you do how, it based on that? How, it's how well, I'm being fact, arrested. Well, the fact, the fact that, yeah, I mean, people like that. They yearn respect. That's why they buy the helicopters and the big houses and wear the silly hats. They, they're saying, look at me, look at me, I'm important. And if their manager goes along with a, a joke about their porn empire, that is belittling and, and the, the relationship has, has gone, hasn't it? So, But any manager, you know any manager going to West Ham now has to battle the... The fact that the fans are disenchanted and the stadium is a very difficult place to be a supporter at. Just walking to the stadium, the fans find difficult because it's so soulless. They need you need extra entertainment, extra points on the board. You need something special there to make it all click together. And, and yeah, Billich was 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 treading in mud by the end. From one set of club owners to another. Um, I'm going to be careful now what I say for legal reasons, but the big story breaking with the Panama Papers, as they come to be known, um, there was a, an offshore law firm, I guess, in, in Panama, which uh, helped set up these, uh, these offshore accounts where people could uh, conceal some of their financial transactions if they so chose. Of course, they were obligated to report them. Anyway, it's part of this whole thing, and it is legal. It's not illegal. It's tax avoidance rather than tax evasion. Um, it has emerged, or it's been suggested, uh, according to BBC's Panorama, that maybe Farhad Mashiri didn't buy half of Everton with his own money, but that there's the cuddly Alisher Usmanov pulling the strings behind him. Of course, Mashiri had a shareholding in Arsenal, which Usmanov also does, although it's the crummy 30% shareholding where Kroenke won't allow them onto the board. Long and short of this is the implication is that Usmanov somehow exercises control over over Everton, something he denies, although Usmanov's company, which I'm sure we've all heard of, and uh, uh, they've actually gone and sponsored, um, I believe, uh, Finch Farm, which is Everton's uh, training ground. Dicko, what do you make of this? Uh, I make of it that it reinforces you know, many regular calls for far more transparency about 
club ownership, that, you know, there should be far more obligation, uh, probably legal obligation, on clubs to be clear about you know, who owns. I know they're you know, private entities now. I know there's a free market, but the fact is that you know, football clubs have a quite a unique place in uh, in sort of cultural life, and fans, I think, feel like understandably feel they have a right to know who who owns their football club and we had this you know we've seen this time and again not least at Leeds United too many opaque ownership models um so uh, you know i think on a general point it reinforces absolutely reinforces calls for that to be made clear listen uh, since we're in the business of uh, pure speculation because we are the media i'm trying to figure out uh why would Uzmanov do this exactly. if indeed he has say, done if this it? was a detective story okay. you'd say what is the motive okay, what is so the motive could the motive be this I'm Uzmanov. I have a ton of money tied up at Arsenal, but Kroenke won't sell to me at a price that I want to pay, and he won't even allow me to sit on the board. So I own 30%, but I've got nothing really other than a little dividend, but in the end, there's no dividend because Kroenke just piles up the cash inside the club. Why shouldn't I be allowed to exercise control over a football club, right? I'm stuck there with these shares, and the guy won't let me do anything with them. He won't let me. He won't let me near the boardroom. What's wrong with me going out and having a little escape hatch through another club up north, where I get my mate to take over? So if worst comes to worst with Cronky, I just sell him the shares or sell the shares to somebody else, get out, and I have a ready-made place to land. Why am I not allowed to do that, Allison? <laughs> you can do it, but you can't do it at the same time. So you can do it. By talking to him and making sure you say stay busy mates but you can't lend him the money to do the influential things that you're then going to come back one day and say remember when I helped you out come on give me Everton make it mine all mine alright joining us now is uh, wow a guy who used to co-host this podcast uh, many years ago before Companies like to sack him because I'm a lot better than he is. Um, it's Guillaume Balaguer, and uh, you'll know him as uh, Spanish football and Premier League football supremo. And he has a book out entitled Brave New World Inside Pochettino's Spurs. Guillaume, welcome. I need to start. I need to start with this because I, I I know the genesis of this because we talked about it at the time. But how do you get so much access from a Premier League manager? And not just, you know, after the fact, ghosting something, but so much access during an actual season, not knowing how things were going to work out. When you started the project, for all you knew, Pochettino might get sacked or kidnapped by aliens. Anything could have happened. Yeah, and in fact, I remember you were the first person that uh, I talked about this and, and the not only the projection of in two years down the road what was going to happen, but also uh, how would the book, be perceived and and would he buy the whole idea? Uh, I remember you being quite um, uh, what, what would be the word negative about it, uh, apprehensive, oh, <laughs> apprehensive, and it, and rightly so because unless you had that kind of access, this book didn't make no sense. So it helps that uh, I've known him for a long time. I, I would say uh, probably consider myself a friend of his. But of course, this was taking the friendship uh, uh, to another level. Uh, I was asking for total access for a whole year. Uh, the thing is, though, uh, he's read the Messi book and uh, he's aware of the Pep Guardiola book as well and, and knew that uh, it was a project that had to go 
deep into his way of working and thinking. Just to clarify, sorry, sorry, because just for listeners who might not get this, when you talk about the Messi book and the Guardiola book, you're obviously talking about Marty Perarnau's uh, Guardiola book <laughs> and Harry Harris's Lionel Messi book, right? Has he done one? No, I, I would imagine he would have. No, I'm kidding. But he's talking about two projects that, that you worked on before, the, the Pep Guardiola book and the Lionel Messi book, right? Yeah, with Pep, he was uh, in, on his last year at Barcelona. And again, he, he opened doors. He understood what he was all about. And the Messi one is the only authorized biography uh, on, on Messi that uh, I wear with his family and himself. So he's aware of he was aware of all that, of, of the levels of, uh, of the demand that a project like this uh, takes. But at first, he was like, well, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, what would be the point? But then Karina, his wife, said, you have to do it. Uh, she saw even earlier than him that it was a way of explaining him, a way of uh, trying to understand what he's about, how he works, what makes him different in certain parts. He's very different to others. And uh, I had to see it. Uh, and then we had to convert that into a book. Uh, next, uh, The next thing is that what kind of style or what kind of genre we were going, well, I was going to choose. And that's what took him a little bit by surprise. And I think he didn't really understand what I meant until he got the draft later on. I said, well, have a look, because these are your words. So after having spoken to everybody around him and having been there every Monday and, and seeing how he works and talking to his family and traveled to see other people that he's been with, uh, I decided to make it a diary of the season and uh, and also a biography in the first person, which is like, you know, like like I, Claudius, for some of you that may have read that, or Memoirs of Hadri and two of my favorite books, are written by authors about somebody else. They are biographies, but they are done in the first person. So he was, he was like, yeah, whatever. And then when he, um, when he saw the the draft and he was in the Spanish, I said, well, have a look, because my worry is that uh, it has to sound like you. Uh, I know that the things that are here, you've said, or people near you have said, or you players have said, but that you have to agree with it. So he read it. Uh, the only his only worry was how the tone in English was gonna was going to be, but I said, look, your English is not good enough to have any tone whatsoever, so we're just going to make the best English we can. One thing that uh, Gad knows, uh, you know, you, you talk to him, he's just, he's that funny. He, the way he uses the words is so interesting, and he's such a great raconteur. He tells you stories one after the other, and he's all, he's, and I've heard the same stories now sometimes three or four times, <laughs> and uses the same words and tonations and jokes and punchlines, but it's so funny when he tells them you wouldn't get that from his English. Yeah, I can confirm that. I had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with him last summer at Disney World in Florida, of all places. And it was uh, very hot, apparently, and you kept talking. That's what I heard. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's, that's what happens in a conversation. Um, one of the defining themes for me of the last couple of years, because I don't understand what makes Harry Kane great. I can see that he's great. And he just seems so beyond the sum of the parts. And one thing that I've, I've thrown to a lot of managers and a lot of football people is I try to get them to explain Harry Kane to me and why it took so long for, what, four different Spurs managers, even Pochettino at the beginning, to either not see it or to bring him along slowly. There's always stuff when we write books that we don't put in the book or we have other insights. I know you obviously you, you discuss Kane in the book, but... What's Poch's take about Harry Kane? Is he is he just like some kind of inexplicable freak, or can he just can can he break him down to his constituent parts? 
If I refresh myself, uh, my memory, because I chose all the uh, cane uh, parts in the book to put it all together for a, for a double spread in, in us, in the, in the Spanish newspaper, Wherefore. Uh, and it reminded me that Pochettino saw straight away what cane was, was made of. I'll tell you a couple of stories about cane, which will tell you what cane carries with him. But of course, as you said, he needed somebody to identify it and, and, and work on it. One is, when he went to Millwall, he actually went to see a game. And he sat with his family uh, in the most, uh, let's call it, noisy part of the stands of, of Millwall. And uh, and what happened there was that, you know, there was a lot of shouting and there was, there was a, lot of, a lot of pressure. He must have been 17, 18. I uh, can't remember the age. But at the end of the game, parents were like, <laughs> you're not coming here. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I am coming here because I, I want all this around me, all this pressure to push me, to keep me going. So that's what it's made of. And now uh, he, he has got a house like an hour and a half uh, from the training ground, but he's either rented or bought another one next to the training ground. So he's the first one arriving and the last one leaving because he knows that work is what takes him where he is. When Pochettino arrived, Kane thought, hmm, this guy is going to bring an Argentinian striker or, you know, there's a De Bayor and Soldado. He will want a top guy. I'm not going to do very well here. But what Pochettino saw was a guy, like many others in that team at the, uh, at the time, who had habits of a 30-year-old. He was an old man. He was overweight. He just behaved a little bit like somebody who's, who's been there, done it all, when he was only 21, if I'm not mistaken. So he had to change that, but he did that by a confidence. Just to be clear, you're talking about Harry Kane here, a 21 having the habits of a 30-year-old veteran. Yes. So in other words, yes. you mentioned Harry Kane at 21, being overweight, being a little lazy. This is what you're talking yeah. about, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because no, it, it, it kind of smashes my my image of of Harry Kane. But Well, at the time, uh, that was the culture of the club. There was a player, which I won't tell you who it is, who did not train on Mondays. Why? Well, because he, he doesn't train on Mondays. Oh, right, okay. So that's what they heard, uh, Jesus and, and Mauricio, and they, they just were like, right, what's this? So this is the kind of club that he, he found, and there was a, there's another story I'd explain in the book in which at the end of the uh, Cali Cup final, Chelsea Spurs, uh, in his first season at Spurs, uh, there was a player of Spurs who went to the face of Jesus Perez at the end of the game and started chanting the Jose Mourinho song. To Jesus Perez's face. This is one of his own players. So yeah, that's what they had to work against, and uh, and Hurricane was part of all that in a way, as in you know he was doing what everybody else was doing. So quite clearly, very early on, he was told, "Keep working. This is what you have to do." He changed the way he worked as well. He focused his uh, energies into into what we see him doing now. Uh, he wasn't just a striker with his back to goal. He had to give much more. And then he was given opportunities, and that's, uh, that it, it's given now as an example to the kids. Look what we've done with Harry Kane. We started playing him, he wasn't scoring, we kept playing him. Eventually, he killed Adebayor, and he killed Soldado, and became what, what he was. And they, they both love each other. They, they're very much into the regime that they, and the atmosphere they created at the, at the club. Guillaume, um, I'm going to leave you with this, with this question, which I know is going to make Spurs fans a little bit uncomfortable, but you were around the club. You had tremendous access to the club. You mentioned Real Madrid earlier in this uh, in this interview. Inevitably, 
managers move on. And I'm assuming Pochettino has ambitions that, you know, he doesn't see himself turning into the Sir Alex Ferguson of, of, of Tottenham Hotspur. Um, Why? Or, or I'm, I'm asking, maybe he does. But were he to move on, do you think he's left in place enough? Did you get a sense from the club that he's put in place enough practices, enough ways of working that the club can operate with somebody else in charge? Or do you think it's going to be starting from scratch if and when he moves on? His impact on the club is, is so huge that uh, it wouldn't be a like-by-like. Like. You couldn't do that that now. I mean, it's 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 about putting a, a very modern structure where everybody gets the best out of everybody. But it's also the way he communicates with players, uh, how he senses the energies of players, how he uh, gives them hugs and, and, and kisses in the cheeks and that kind of thing that destroys barriers or, or pulls up new ones, uh, depending who it is, of course. But it won't be as simple as that. And that's why in the conversation I had with uh, Danny Levy, it was a, a very long one. And, and I used uh, in the epilogue most of it. He mentions that he wants him to be his uh, Alex Ferguson and be at the club for 15 years. And uh, and he's joked already about it, Mauricio, saying, all right, but where is the 15-year contract then? And, and the thing that this is very important for Spurs fans to understand is that, number one, the club has to match his ambition. Now he uh, he is the driving force of that club now. But hand in hand with, with Danny Levy in a way that Daniel has not had that kind of thinking about, about coaches in the past. So they're hand in hand, but they're the driving forces. That's number one. But number two, at the beginning of their stay at, uh, at Spurs, the coaching staff and Mauricio as well, they used to have this joke when, when they had a bad game, when Spurs had a bad game or they drew or they lost, uh, somebody would put a, a, a towel in somebody's head and, and shout, why did we leave Southampton? Uh, because for them, it's not just a, a, you know steps towards a bigger career that ends up at Real Madrid. It's about, uh, as Eddie Jones told me three, four weeks ago, it's about everybody wants to be part of something special. And they feel they are part of something special, of, of the, the creation of an identity, not just of a, a club that goes into a new stadium. There's an identity being created here, uh, which I think Danny Levy, in a way, has found, not by accident, but... Uh, he probably wasn't didn't know exactly what was coming when Pochettino was coming, and when you have that, why leave it behind for as long as you can push on to win titles and to challenge for things? And those things are are absolutely key. So forget about when Real Madrid comes calling, because already, as you should know, two of the top ten clubs in Europe have already come calling, and the answer was no. So it's about continuing being part of this special thing. The book is Brave New World, Inside Pochettino's Spurs. The author is Guillaume Balaguet. I'm really psyched to finish reading it. I think you should should all check it out. And uh, if you uh, hit Guillaume up on Twitter, the first 1,000 people who write to him and write a little haiku, I'm told, will get free signed copies. That's correct, right, Guillaume? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Guillaume, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Now it's time for your favorite part of the show and my favorite too. It's Quick Hits. Graeme Souness liked it too. Did he? Mm. Did he did, did I did sh- Quick Hits with Graeme Souness in your absence, girl. No, you didn't. I did. Didn't I, producer? Yeah, I did. But did you have the sound effects that I have? No, you know I think they're very rude. I don't use those. Liverpool tournament West Ham and win 4-1 away. Alison, um... 
Given the uh, successful pacey counterattacking of Mane and Salah, which ultimately cost uh, uh, Slavin Bilic's job, do you ever wonder if maybe it might be nice if Klopp in certain games, just to surprise everybody, ended up just parking the bus, having Coutinho sit in front of the back four, just pinging balls to uh, uh, to the two roadrunners? Yeah. Might that, that work? Would, that would be hilarious, but it's not going to happen. He was speaking after the game about how he's assimilated Oxlade-Chamberlain into his... High pressing, and he said things like, we are all about the high press, we are all about intensity. There is no other way for Klopp, and he only brings in players that will do that and learn how to do that. For him to suddenly say one week, OK, we're just going to sit back, take it easy, guys, just rely on the the pace of our paciest, it's not going to happen. But I agree, it would be it would be great fun and a huge shock to everybody if he did it just once. It was supposed to be a cakewalk, uh, but it was anything but. Dicko, why did Tottenham find it so tough at Wembley against Crystal Palace? Are you going to blame Guillaume Balaguer's book? <laughs> um, I think, uh, well, we probably look at a couple of reasons, can't we? Crystal Palace, um, Roy Hodgson is getting them... Uh, pretty well drilled as that's what he does um they've got some decent defenders and uh roy is beginning to to work his um painstaking uh training ground ways um i think we've seen that and i think spurs probably when you've had the highs of real madrid recently maybe it's a game where the yeah, energy levels motivation levels are, are not on full steam i love how hodgson came out afterwards and was so straight up about how like you need a goal scorer, and we have two wingers, and that's it. 2-0 uh, down at home, and then they win 3-2 against Watford, albeit with a little help from Tom Cleverley, who conjures a way to miss an injury time penalty. Allison, did Unzi convince you he's fit for the Everton job? I don't know, because... It's <laughs> nothing to do with this, him, is that what you're going to say? Well, partly, but it's also, it's not reality. If you come in as an emergency measure, especially if you're already part of the setup at the club... You can do things you wouldn't do if you were an external appointment, like bringing through youngsters, hauling off Wayne Rooney, trying everything. It's sort of football by numbers. Let's try this. Let's try that. Um, and, and then exude a lot of passion, which he does on the touchline. It's, it's a fake world. It's, I'm not even sure it's a decent audition, to be honest. If that's how he's going to manage till the end of the season, then no, he, that isn't a great way of going about being a manager. But I don't really see what else he could do, given the circumstances. We're all rooting for Anzi. West Brom fall at Huddersfield 1-0, but given Tony Pulis's recent record, Dicko, why does he feel the need to talk about how he has the faith of the baggies board? Eh? Didn't they finish in the top half of the table last season? Uh, probably something to do with the fact that he's got a load of um, West Brom fans shouting Pulis out uh, quite noisily why? at the whistle. They're getting a bit naffed off because the club's, uh, well, the record in the last six months uh, going back into last season, ain't uh, the best, and they're near the relegation zone. But a, a guy who's never been relegating his career, I'd be surprised if they panic. Glenn Murray scores again, and Brighton win at Swansea 1-0. Alison, please help me celebrate Glenn Murray, who I think is some kind of, uh, I mean, we probably talked about this before, but I think he's some kind of everyman. He's he's Joe Blow, who, who just goes out there, or, or Joe Bloggs, you might say, uh, who just goes out there and isn't particularly good at anything, but then scores goals, really big goals, four goals in three games, seven of a possible nine points for the Seagulls. The goals are flying with Glenn Murray. Yeah, it's more about 
his reading of the game and you know he's one of those strikers who's in the right place I mean he scored a header against West Ham where I think he was aiming for the other corner it goes in <laughs> off his thigh at the weekend <laughs> but he's there he's there and he's reading the game and he is he is a bit of a throwback and I'm very glad he exists I mean you know he's gone through non-league he went to America I didn't think he was going to make it wherever he's been people have said wasn't he a bit old and rubbish but he's just kept on going Stoke draw with Leicester City and the big man does it again. Oh, we have a theme here with English centre forwards. Peter Crouch comes off the bench to score his third goal of the season. Now, Dicko, he is 47 years old. Not really, but that's his, maybe his, uh, uh, his metabolic age. Uh, and he's still productive. Is football ultimately, and this is a philosophical question, really that simple a game that if you have a guy who is eight feet tall and has decent timing on a decent head on his shoulders... He'll keep scoring well into his 40s, and there is nothing the opposition can do about it. Yeah, I remember doing a column with Craig Bellamy at the uh, last Euros, and he was saying, look, you know, just because you're a team that aspires to play a certain way, and maybe you know, England talking about you know, trying to get it down and use these um, you know, young, technical, breaking and fast attackers, said that yes, exactly that. There comes a time when you need to drag fullbacks out out of the way. So what do you have to do that by making sure you've got wingers who are crossing to a big man because it starts pulling all sorts of defences all over the way and as you say, gets ten and a half worried. So yeah. let's let's not rule out that what is regarded as unsophisticated plan B. I'm, well, not, I, I'm not advocating crouch for the England squad, by the way, um, but um, the, the notion of of the big man shouldn't just be dismissed. That's our, our Peter Crouch discussion for the season. Um, oh, but you have to answer a question. Ooh, do I? Um, Germany's version of the Classico, apparently, was held on Saturday. What happened when Bayern travelled to face Borussia Dortmund? I suppose you haven't read my excellent column in in the game then, Alison, if you're asking me that question. It's been absolutely remarkable. So three weeks ago, Borussia Dortmund uh, were five points ahead of Bayern in the table. Uh, today, after losing 3-1 at home, they're six points behind them. That's an 11-point swing in three weeks, which is sort of difficult to even imagine. It has to do with the fact that obviously Bayern won their games, but it's also, and I allude to this, Jupp Heynckes is extremely old to the point that he's achieved some kind of weirdo Jedi force. <laughs> Seriously, he's 73 years old. He's far and away the oldest manager in the Champions League. He, he told people he'd retired in 2013. But actually what he's done is he's gone away and he has learned to go and master the force and thereby really attained Jedi level. Does he put verbs in the wrong place? Sometimes when he chooses to, yes. Um, and what he did was, the minute he got appointed, he said, all right, well, we can win our games, but we need to slow the opposition down. So let me go with this Peter Boss guy, who's the Borussia Dortmund manager, who I think is terrible personally, and let's go and mess with his head and mess with his teams. And since then, Borussia Dortmund have drawn home and away with Applewell in the Champions League. Um, they lost to Hanover. They lost at home to Leipzig. Their team's basically been rubbish. They could never defend well, but now like they look extremely, they look worse than they did before. They've been put, they've been put in those situations, and uh, and yeah, that's that's the genius of Heinkes. He doesn't just make Bayern better; he makes everybody else worse. <laughs> Hi there, and welcome to the Game Week Eleven recap from the Sweeper, which is of course the Times' fantasy football tip service. This week, I'm up Sweeper Creek without a paddy, as Mr. Umbera is having a well-deserved week off in Cheltenham. So, 
This weekend, Mohamed Salah was our tip of the week from Friday's email. The Egyptian forward was in sensational form as Liverpool car through West Ham on Saturday, scoring twice and picking up all three bonus points against the unhappy Hammers. He scored 15 points, which was the joint highest in the league. We also nudged you in the direction of Richarlison and the Watford attacker producer Goods by scoring seven points. The Brazilian scored in the 3-2 defeat by Everton and would have grabbed an assist too, but for Tom Cleverley's missed penalty in the dying stages. You could tell that Richarlison wanted to take it too, so that was a painful one for his owners. Elsewhere, Sean Dyche must be considering opening up a laundrette because of the number of clean sheets that Burnley are producing. It's quite phenomenal. Ben, me and the gang secured their fifth shutout in the past eight game weeks against Southampton. And I know we've spoken about this before, but it's worth repeating. Four of Burnley's back five cost only 4.5 million. So please, if you're not on that already, then get involved. International fortnight now, so remember Paddy's sage advice from last time out. No matter how frustrated you might be with your team and if they're underperforming, Unless you're playing a wild card, then hold fire before making transfers as you never know what might happen in the next two weeks. On the flip side of that, plenty of big names like Paul Pogba, Adam Lallana, Danny Welbeck, Vincent Company, and Deli Alley are scheduled to return to full fitness, so it's worth monitoring their progress before making any rash moves. For more nuggets of wisdom from Paddy and occasionally myself, sign up for the sweeper at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football to get an email each Friday packed full of fantasy football tips. This Friday's email will have the question for our October competition to win a 12-month digital subscription to The Times. The deadline for entries for that is midnight on Friday evening. We will have a full run-through of Game Week 11, including the curse of the high-profile transfer and an update on The Times Mini League up on the website later today, so do keep an eye out for that. Right, that's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guests, Alison Rudd, Matt Dickinson, Guillaume Balaguet, who, uh, who came on to talk about his book. Now remember... Just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. You'd be mad not to. Search the Times online. You get access to all our excellent content, including some stuff that only lives on the websites, like these these daily game columns. Actually, writing mine on Tuesday to come up with a topic. And this season also, you can access highlights of every single game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup. International break is coming up. Everybody's favorite time of the year actually to those of us whose countries are in the playoffs like me it matters a lot um we're going to be back next monday when who knows maybe northern ireland and the republic of ireland could be on their way to the world cup Alison, what chances an all irish derby in the quarterfinals of the world cup it's it's a certainty put your money on it now pretty freaking cool if it did happen till next time bye bye The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 